Hey everyone, welcome to After Dark Analysis. Today we are going to be talking about compliance, which typically doesn't get put as a horror movie, but is based off some terrifying true events. Now, when a film opens saying it's based on true events, BS censors go way up. Plenty of films embellish true events to make for a more interesting movie. Case in point, most things based off Ed Gein. But sometimes the events shown in the movie are very close to what actually happened. In 1992, there started a chain of events which are now referred to as the strip search scam calls. A man will call a restaurant or grocery store in a small town. He'd identify himself as a police officer or other authority figure and would ask for the manager or supervisor. He would then solicit their help in detaining a female employee or customer who was suspected of a crime and he would then ask the manager to search the suspected woman. Over 70 occurrences happened in 30 different states, which is also stated on the end card to compliance. Some notable examples were two calls were reported in 1992, one in Devils Lake, North Dakota, the other in Fallon, Nevada. This is cited as the origin of where these calls started. On November 30th of 2000, in Litchfield, Kentucky, a female McDonald's manager undressed herself in the presence of a customer because the caller had convinced her that the customer was a suspected sex offender and that the manager, serving as bait, would enable undercover police officers to arrest him. January 26, 2003, an Applebee's assistant manager subjected a waitress to a 90-minute strip search after receiving a collect call from someone purporting to be a regional manager for Applebee's. February 2003, Haynesville, Georgia. A call was made to a McDonald's, the female manager who believed she was speaking to a police officer who was with the director of operations for the restaurant's upper management, took a female employee to the women's bathroom and strip-searched her. She also brought in a male employee who then conducted a body cavity search of the woman to uncover hidden drugs. July 2003, Panama City, Florida. A Winn-Dixie grocery store manager received a call instructing him to bring a female cashier into the office where she was strip-searched, since she matched the description of a suspect provided by the caller. The cashier was forced to undress and pose in various positions as part of the search. The incident ended when another manager entered the office to retrieve a set of keys. March 2004, Fountain Hills, Arizona. A female customer at a Taco Bell was strip-searched by a manager who had received a call from a man claiming to be a police officer. Which brings us to April 9th, 2004. This is where the incident that compliance is based on took place. Since it does mirror the case so closely, I'm going to focus on the facts of the event itself and point out where the film deviates. All names have obviously been changed. The real event took place at a McDonald's in Mount Washington, Kentucky. In the film, it's a fictitious restaurant called Chickwitch. Assuming this change was due to legal reasons, it's understandable McDonald's would not want to license their brand for this. The caller got a hold of assistant manager Donna Summers, not Donna Summer, the singer, but she goes by the name of Sandra in the film. The caller identified himself as Officer Scott. In the film, it's Officer Daniels. A vague description is given in the film of a slightly built young white woman with blonde hair, and she is told they are suspected of theft. I can't seem to pinpoint exactly the description that Summers got, but Summers believed that he was describing Louise Ogborn, who goes by Becky in the film. Judging from interviews and security cam footage of the event, 
Ogborn was a young, built white woman with brown hair. So that may be the only variance there. He demanded Ogborn be searched at the restaurant because no officers were available at the moment to handle such a minor matter. Ogborn was brought into the office and ordered to remove her clothes, which Summers then placed in a bag and took out to her car as instructed. In the film, it was also specified that she needed to leave her car door unlocked so officers could access it. She then put on an apron to partially cover herself. Another assistant manager, Kim Dockery, or Marty in the film, was present at the time. The caller then told Summers to bring in somebody she trusted to assist with the investigation. She first asked Jason Bradley, Kevin in the film, who was one of the restaurant's cooks, to watch Ogborn. When the caller ordered Bradley to remove Ogborn's apron to describe her, Bradley refused but did not attempt to call the police. Summers then called in her fiancé, Walter Nix Jr., known as Van in the film. Aside from the names, this is the only other fairly large deviation. In the film, they were not engaged, but Sandra believed that Van was going to propose soon, so she called him her fiancé on multiple occasions, even though it wasn't technically true. Security camera footage shows that after being told that there was a police officer on the phone, Nix can be seen obeying the caller's instructions for the next two hours. He removed her apron and ordered her to dance and perform jumping jacks. She was also instructed to show him her genitalia as part of the search. This is seriously toned down in the film where she's just asked to bend over. Nix also ordered her at the behest of Officer Scott to sit in his lap and kiss him. When she refused, he was told to spank her until she promised to do so. Compliance also toned this bit down as well. In the security cam footage, we can see welds clearly developed from the spanking, whereas the film didn't get that graphic. The caller also spoke to Ogborn directly, demanding that she do as she was told or face worse punishment. Recalling the incident later, Ogborn said that she was scared for her life, which is an understandable reaction when you have your employer doing this to you, who controls your job and your livelihood, supposedly acting off the orders of the police, who could detain her and take away her freedom. After two and a half hours of this, Ogborn was ordered to perform a sexual act on Nix. During all this happening, Summers was returning to the office periodically. During these times, Ogborn was always instructed by the caller to cover herself up with the apron, and the security camera shows Nix throwing the apron at Ogborn on multiple occasions. Eventually, Nix became uneasy about what was happening, and the caller permitted him to leave on the condition that Summers find someone else to replace him. After Nix left the building, he called a friend and told him, I've done something terribly bad. Short on staff due to Ogborn being detained and the dinnertime rush that happens at a McDonald's at night, Summers needed to find somebody to take Nix's place. She just so happened to spot Thomas Sims, Harold in the film, who just so happened to be stopping by the restaurant to have some dessert. She told Sims to go in the office and watch Ogborn. When Sims refused to go along with the caller's demands, Summers became suspicious and decided to call the upper management Officer Scott claimed to be speaking with directly. Of course, they knew nothing of any of this. In some reports, it says that they were home sleeping. In other ones, it just says that they didn't know. In the film, they say they had been homesick all day. This is when Officer Scott hung up. An employee quickly dialed star 69 before any other calls could come through to the restaurant giving them the number that the alleged officer called from. When the cops were called, Summers did apologize, 
In compliance, it's a little bit more of a stunned shock look, but there was some clear sense of regret as she's piecing everything together. The whole ordeal lasted three and a half hours. While the timeline in the film isn't super clear, we do see a lunch and a dinner rush, which implies that the events took a little longer than three and a half hours. The entire incident was recorded by a surveillance camera in the office. Summers watched the tapes later that night, and according to her attorney, immediately broke off her engagement with Nix. What happened after the police were called is pretty lightly touched on in the film. The Mount Washington police did a very simple word search on the internet and realized this was only the latest in a long string of events that had lasted about 10 years. Several similar scam calls have been placed in Boston area restaurants. In the film, this is shown by a back and forth with police calling the calling card company that they could trace this back to. And the employee assumes they're working another case. This is when everybody puts it together that this has happened more than once. The reason this particular instance got so much media attention is because there were more people involved and it lasted much longer than the previous scam calls. The original suspicion is that the call originated from a payphone near the McDonald's, but it also had a clear line of sight to the police station, which was about a quarter of a mile away. We see this a little bit in the film with a man on a payphone that is outside of the restaurant. And since this was made in 2012, that's automatically noteworthy. The police later determined the call originated from a supermarket payphone in Panama City, Florida, using an AT&T phone card and purchased at a Walmart. They were able to determine that the card had been purchased from a different Walmart than the card used to call the Massachusetts restaurants. Each time the purchaser was caught on camera, and in one video was wearing a correctional officer's uniform the kind used by Corrections Corporation of America, which is a private security firm. With this footage, they were able to make a front and back composite photo, which they took to Corrections Corporation of America's HR department, who identified the suspect as David R. Stewart. In the film, the cops find a plate number, which is clearly an easier story to tell. Stewart insisted he had never bought a phone card, but detectives found one in his home that had been used to call nine of the restaurants in the past year including a call to a Burger King in Ohio Falls, which happened on the same day that Ogborn was assaulted. This card was found alongside dozens of applications for police department jobs, hundreds of police magazines, as well as a police-style uniform complete with gun and holster, leading them to believe he fantasized about becoming a police officer. Stewart was extradited to Kentucky to be tried on charges of impersonating an officer and solicitation of sodomy, which meant he was facing about 15 years in prison. On October 31st, 2006, he was acquitted of all charges. Both the defense and the prosecution attorney stated that the lack of direct evidence may have affected the jury's decision. Though acquitted, he did remain a suspect in similar cases all throughout the United States. The police also confirmed that the call stopped after Stewart's arrest. Even past Stewart's acquittal, there was still a lot to be hashed out in the court of law. Louise Ogborn had to undergo therapy and start taking medications to address her post-traumatic stress disorder. She ended up abandoning her plans of going to the University of Louisville, where she wanted to go pre-med. In an interview with ABC News, she said after the abuse, she felt dirty and had a difficult time maintaining or making friendships because she wouldn't allow anyone to get too close to her. Three years later, she went on to sue McDonald's for $200 million for failing to protect her during the ordeal. Her grounds for the lawsuit were 
McDonald's corporate were aware of the dangers of a possible hoax because they defended themselves against lawsuits over similar instances in four other states. McDonald's had been subject to similar hoaxes at least two years before, and they had not taken appropriate action as directed by their own chief of security, as outlined in a memo to McDonald's upper management. Donna Summers not only ended her engagement, she was fired from McDonald's for violating corporate policies prohibiting strip searches and prohibiting anyone not employed by McDonald's from entering the restaurant's office. She entered an Alford plea to a charge of unlawful imprisonment, which is a misdemeanor, and received one year probation, and she was not charged with any sex-related crime. She also sued McDonald's, asking for $50 million for failing to warn her about previous hoaxes. Kim Dockery doesn't seem like she had any legal charges, but she was transferred to another restaurant location. Walter Nix did plead guilty to sexual assault, sexual misconduct, and unlawful imprisonment. The judge agreed to a plea deal for Nix in exchange for his testimony against Stewart. Since he was the principal perpetrator in the assault as well as the sex act, he received a five-year prison sentence. McDonald's did defend themselves against the lawsuits citing that Summers deviated from company policy which prohibits strip searches and therefore should not be held responsible for any action of Summers outside of the scope of her employment. Workers' compensation laws in the U.S. also prohibit employees from suing their employer. Nix, who actually performed the acts, was not a McDonald's employee and therefore not their responsibility. And lastly, the victim did not remove herself from the situation, this is a direct quote, contrary to common sense. Ogborn was awarded $5 million in punitive damages and $1.1 million in compensatory damages and expenses. McDonald's did appeal, and Ogborn settled with them for $1.1 million and abandoned her claim for punitive damages. Summers was awarded $1 million in punitive damages and $100,000 in compensatory damages. This was also appealed, and her punitive damages were reduced down to $400,000. The jury decided that McDonald's and the unnamed caller were each 50% at fault for the abuse that Ogborn suffered. McDonald's and its attorneys were sanctioned for withholding evidence pertinent to the outcome of the trial. McDonald's was also ordered to pay $2.4 million in legal fees to the plaintiff's lawyers. After some court decisions, McDonald's revised their manager training program to emphasize awareness of scam phone calls and for protection of employee rights. It's time to address the elephant in the room. Anytime something like this happens, people rightfully question why and go, I would never do something like that. How stupid are those people? But that's the thing. This has happened repeatedly. There was a trend for a while of extreme prank phone calls. Some would call hotel desk workers or the hotel guests themselves to have them set off sprinklers in the rooms. According to NBC, there were at least eight cases of that reported in four different states. Others called fast food restaurants to tell them that there was a gas leak and that they had to break out all the windows in the restaurant to let it air out so the place didn't blow up. According to CNN, at least three Burger Kings, one Wendy's, and one Jack in the Box fell for that one. The movie Don't Hang Up, while not based around a business, is completely based off the idea of extreme prank phone calls. While something like this may never be fully understood, there are some studies that can give us some idea of just how people react to these type of situations. While a lot of these experiments we are about to discuss are older, they typically serve as a standard example of these concepts. A lot of people have redone these experiments. While the results may not always be exactly the same, they stay fairly close to the originals. 
And some of these experiments cannot be repeated now due to ethics and rules that are now in place to prohibit this type of thing. The first and probably the most cited of these experiments is the Milgram experiment, which took place in 1961. The Milgram experiment on obedience to authority figures was a series of social psychological experiments conducted by Yale University professor Stanley Milgram. They gathered a group of men from diverse occupations and varying levels of education to measure the willingness of study participants to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their own personal conscience. The participants were led to believe that they were assisting in a completely different study in which they had to administer electric shocks to a learner in another room. These fake electric shocks gradually increased to levels that would have been fatal had the person been real. Surprisingly, the study found that a high portion of men would reluctantly follow instructions. The study is now used as a classic example of authority bias, which is the tendency to attribute greater accuracy to the opinion of an authority figure and be more influenced by that opinion. While there have been countless scientists that have done very similar things to the Milgram experiment, a notable example is the Hoffling Hospital Experiment from 1966, where a psychiatrist Charles K. Hoffling conducted a field experiment on obedience in the nurse-physician relationship. In the natural hospital setting, a person would call the nurse saying they were a doctor. They would ask the nurse to administer 20 milligrams of a fake drug to a patient, and that he or she would provide the required signature for the medication later on. Now, this fake drug was put in the drug cabinet and had clearly printed on the label that the maximum daily dose was 10 milligrams. So they were being asked to give double the daily dosage to this patient. This experiment found that 21 out of the 22 nurses would have given the patient the overdose of medication. They also found out 21 of the 22 nurses that they had given the questionnaire to beforehand said they would not obey doctor's orders and that 10 of the 22 nurses had done this before. All this did was really add on to Milgram saying that most people would say I wouldn't do that before they turn right around and do that. In terms of psychological experiments that prove authority bias, the Stanford Prison Experiment from 1971 is probably the only one that's considered on par with Milgram in terms of usage and references. This was a social psychology experiment that attempted to investigate the psychological effects of perceived power focusing on the struggles between prisoners and prison officers. This experiment was conducted at Stanford University between August 14th and 20th. The research group was led by Professor Philip Zimbargo using college students. The volunteers for this mock prison were randomly assigned either prisoner or guard, and Zimbardo himself served as a superintendent. The guards were obviously meant to be authority figures. They were also asked to wear sunglasses as a barrier between themselves and the prisoners, as well as an attempt to dehumanize themselves. Early reports on the experiment's results claimed that the students quickly embraced their assigned roles, with some guards enforcing authoritarian measures and ultimately subjecting some prisoners to psychological torture. And while many prisoners passively accepted the psychological abuse, and by the officer's request, actively began harassing other prisoners who tried to stop it. After several prisoners left him an experiment, because of this, they shut down the experiment after six days. As heavily cited as the study is, it's hard to not acknowledge that the methodology here is questionable at best. In 1978, psychologist Ellen Langer 
had people request to break in on the line that was waiting for a copy machine on a college campus. The researchers had people asked to cut in line three different ways. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies? Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? What happens next will shock you. The results of this experiment? Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Resulted in about 60% compliance, meaning they allowed them to cut in line. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies? 93% compliance. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? 94% compliance. Using the word because and giving a reason resulted in significantly more compliance. This was even true when the reason wasn't even that compelling. Like when they said, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies? We can pretty safely assume if somebody's waiting in line for a Xerox machine, it's because they also have to make copies. When the experiment was repeated with 20 pages instead of just the five, the I'm in a rush reason resulted in much more compliance. All these studies show tactics that were used in this string of crimes. Color identifying themselves as law enforcement, working in conjunction with corporate, establishes them as an authority figure. Ogborn's clothes being removed was an attempt to dehumanize her, make escape harder, and make her feel weak and vulnerable. And all throughout, reasons were provided for each and every action, no matter how lame they are in hindsight. The caller also kept assuring them that they would take full responsibility for anything that happened, taking the pressure of consequences off the people participating, which study after study shows causes people to act in ways they normally wouldn't due to the fear of consequences. When you look at the interviews done after the fact, specifically Summers and Ongborn, Summers denies seeing multiple things that the security camera shows she was clearly present for. One of these events is shown in the film where the interviewer asked her if she saw Becky nude while she was sitting with Van. She said she was always covered every time she entered the room. Security camera footage contradicting this is shown to her and she is advised by her lawyer, who's off camera, not to answer that, much to the shock of the interviewer. There are several instances like this where Summers honestly seems to believe something that contradicts the security cam footage of that night. Ogborn almost always gets asked why she didn't run. Her answer remains the same. She was scared. Keep in mind, to her knowledge at that moment, her running would have been her running from police. Not to mention the embarrassment and legal trouble she could have gotten in from running nude. Indecent exposure is a crime that is compounded upon when children are present, which they probably were at a fast food restaurant on a busy night. The point of media representations and looking at cases like this is to try and understand how things like this happen. Not to dismiss real people by going, I would have done things differently. I'm sure every single person involved said the same thing until it happened to them. Thank you for listening. I'd like to take a moment out to thank my patrons. Scotty Robot, Carla Hoffman, Ghani. If you'd like to contribute to this channel financially, there's one tier, it's $1. You get a thank you in each video and Discord access. Even if you don't contribute to this channel financially, your time and viewership is always appreciated. Thank you.